now you could just pull down my vocal just a little bit, just the, the white one. First Timothy is going to be a series for us. I felt the Lord. I, I First of all, I, I'm going to be here much earlier than I've been before because there's, A, no more traffic. Uh, the road construction is done. And then, B, I don't have a morning class to, to worry about. And we fixed the Internet. So if I do get a morning class, it will be fine now. And then uh, Jonathan helped me discover that when we plug in our laptops, they triple, quadruple the speed. So there's no problem now. Uh, another thing is that I want you guys to have a lunch break. I really feel that that's good for you guys to have. So my goal is to be done praying around 1230. Not done with the message. Done with the message before that. But done praying by 1230. That way you guys can relax and enjoy the day because I know those days get long. Okay? So how many can say, thank you, Jesus? Amen. So as I was coming here today, I just felt the Lord say, don't even think of a message. I'll give it to you in uh, worship, which is just one or two steps, you know, later than when he normally gives it to me. Normally he'll give it to me in the morning, and I'll just have it in my heart, and I'll preach it when I get here. So just had to totally be dependent today. And I'm glad that I was because I've been really searching for something that would be ongoing, something that would develop over time, kind of like how we did Zechariah last year. I was really believing for something like that. I didn't know how to do a series yet here and, and what to do. But I felt to do it on the book of Timothy because Timothy, as you guys know, is part of the pastoral epistles. And for me, in my ministry, it's been my favorite pastoral epistle. Uh, maybe Titus comes next, but I love Timothy specifically because he's a young man. And I know that that's how I started off as a young man. He's not mentioned to have a wife, so uh, we assume that he was a young man without a wife. Everybody guesses at the age. Nobody knows for sure. It's, it's actually impossible to know how old he is. I like to place him in his early 20s. That's what I like to do. I don't think he was beyond 30 because then 30 is, is, is like where they think you're a man, like you become a man, like 30 years old. So um, not to say they couldn't do man things, like you, you could have a job, you could fight in the military, much younger than that. But in the rabbinical studies, in the, uh, the Jewish culture, to be a man that could teach and really have a ministry, you'd have to be around 30 years old to serve in the temple. So I definitely know he's younger than 30, and in my mind, I think he's older than 20. So I don't think he's a teenager anymore. I think he's in his 20s. So anybody here in their 20s? Amen. Anybody here in their 20s? Say amen. So that would pretty much be this whole uh, college ministry. Amen. Everybody's here in their 20s. Today's uh, uh, message is going to be on chapter 1, and the message is know who you are and know what you came to do. Come on, know who you are and know what you came to do. That's how I think we can summarize chapter 1 of Timothy, is that Paul is going to tell him who he is and what he's there to do. Why is he there in Ephesus? Why is Timothy there? He's going to tell him that. And then he's going to tell Timothy who he is. Now, why is this important? It's important today for future ministers and, and those of you who are even ministering right now, it's important for you to know this because wherever you go, you need to know who you are. You need to know who you are. You can't let somebody define who you are. Sometimes the people will try to tell you who you are. Well, you should preach more like this. I think it would be better if you would do this. No, you need to know who you are. And then you need to know what you're there to do. Like I said, sometimes people will try to get you off, off target. People will try to say, well, why don't you try this or why don't you try that? No, you need to stick with who you are and what you came to do. Some of the examples that I think of early on in ministry, it, you know, when you start off, you don't have a lot. So when people come, like they're precious, you know, and, and you really love them, and then you want to you hear what they think. You know, like, okay, uh, there was five of you here today. Okay, so after you ended the service, you know, kind of like how I do here at chapel, I set down the mic and then you start talking. Well, sometimes when you preach to a group like that, like Sunday morning service, the last little uh, guitar strum was done or the last CD was played, and then you just step off and you're like, okay, Mike, Bob, Gary, how, how did you guys enjoy it? You know, there's only five of you. And so at that time, you'll hear feedback. And I remember, uh, you know, just hearing all different types of feedback. And sometimes it's most, the most discouraging thing you can hear is right after service. Because you've just preached everything you've had, you've done everything that you feel is right, and then you just step out. And somebody might say, well, I, I thought that was a little, little harsh. 
And I can remember people doing that to me, saying, well, man, uh, Pastor, you know, I think that was a little tough. I, I, I don't think you should tell us that, you know. And what, I don't think my friend's going to come back. So, you know, you've been telling them to bring their friends, and now they have a friend sitting next to them. And then they're telling you, I don't think my friend's going to come back. See, what are you going to do when you face situations like that? When you're doing ministry, and maybe people want to try to change who you are. Or they want to change what you're doing. I can also remember times where we felt seasons to do what God told us to do. The last one, uh, particularly in the youth ministry, we're going to cut out the games. We're going to cut out these different things. Well, people left. And it was one of the hardest things for me to hear when I would hear somebody that used to go to the youth group, and we'd you know, meet them at the mall or something, go, oh, well, we used to come when you guys had all those games, and it was really fun. But it's not fun anymore, so we don't go. So we go to another youth group. You know, that kind of hurt. But I had to know what I came to do. I had to know who I was. And especially when you go overseas, when you go to minister to people, I know a lot of times you guys have this romantic idea that when you go overseas, everybody's going to accept Jesus. They're going to be so excited that you're there. You're never going to have any troubles. It's just going to be, oh, oh, oh. They're going to just hang on every word you say. Church services are going to go 10 hours long. Every person you pray for is going to get healed. That's not true at all. I remember when we were in India and we were preaching to the pastors and, you know, we had traveled, you know, basically uh, 30, I think 30 hours, 32 hours nonstop to get there. So we were on like three different flights. One layover was six hours. Our longest flight was nine hours. We did like a nine-hour. Then we did an eight-hour. Then we had like a three-hour layover. Then we had to do another flight, another flight. And like all together, the whole entire process was about 32 hours. And I remember getting there with the pastors, and I knew I had so much to share. And I said to them, we can do lunch at 3 o'clock, and I can finish my point, or we can do lunch right now. What do you guys want to do? And they all raised their hand and said, we want to take a lunch break. And, yeah, you're looking at me crazy right now because you're thinking, I didn't think they would do that. I thought they were crazy prayer words. Well, there's a time where I guess Indian people want to eat, and they don't want to be interrupted. And I had to learn not to take that personal. You see, I thought when I went over there that everybody was going to just want to, just like in China, have service eight hours straight. Only thing I could do is take a bathroom break, but they would still stay there, preach the whole Bible. That's not the way it is all the time. I also remember being in Mexico and uh, when we were with, their, uh, with Ish, and I remember, you know, coming to pastors, the pastors there and saying, do you guys want to go evangelizing? And I remember seeing their, uh, their hesitancy, their, their shyness, their bashfulness. They didn't even want to go evangelizing. And I'm thinking to myself, we're calling these Metro Grace churches, and yet they don't even want to go evangelizing. And then it reminds me of another story when we had the Latino church, uh, Latino church sharing this building with the pastor. And we were telling them about our discipleship ministry, you know, how we'll, you know, do a hundred word papers if somebody doesn't show up. And, our, and Nancy was there and the wife of the pastor looked at us and said, I don't think the Latino people will do that. They're not going to want to do that. You see, there's times in your ministry where people are going to try to change who you are and what you came to do. It can be from the evangelism team. I'm just getting a bunch of examples flooding my spirit right now. The evangelism team. How many times, this is probably one of the most popular, how many times do other Christians want to come up to you while you're evangelizing you, evangelizing and tell you how to do it better? That's where it happens all the time. Well, well, you know what? I think you guys are going about it the wrong way. You know, people are not going to listen to you like this. And then, like, you ask them, have you ever read the Bible? Have you ever read what Jesus did? Do you crucify somebody you love? Jesus was hated by people. And then you ask them, by the way, what are you doing out here? What are you doing out here, St. Bartholomew? Why do, you, why do you smell like a margarita? Why, uh, why are you trying to give me lessons on evangelism when I still see the beer stains on your T-shirt, Bubba? Because they used to do that at Mardi Gras, too. They're trying to, oh, you're, you're doing it all wrong. My dad's a pastor. You know, and you got beer stains all over his shirt. People will try to change your ministry. People will try to change who you are. Maybe some of you, your parents don't recognize the five-fold ministry giftings of who you are. And they wanted to change that. But coming to Bible college was a sacrifice. 
maybe for some of your friends. Like for me, being a pastor, my Christian friends never thought I could be a pastor. They said, oh, you're too radical. You're too intense. You could only be an evangelist. I, Nancy's my witness again. I've actually even had pastors tell their congregation not to consider me a pastor, that I was a rogue pastor, and that wasn't my gifting, and that I'm really just supposed to be an evangelist out preaching. I've had pastors try to do that, change who I was. And if I was a weaker person, I might have listened and been changed. If I would have been a weaker person when we had this ministry start, and Nancy was there, and people were looking at me, and they were going, this is too intense. Adam is even a witness to that. The first 201 class, Adam and three youth were in. That was all it was. It wasn't an adult. The first ones that started it were the youth. And they looked at me. His friends looked at me and said, you're asking too much. Just ease it up a little bit. It's okay if we miss. It's okay if we put prom before this class. It's okay. We're, we're, if you do it like this, we won't go to the class. And they all dropped out. They all dropped out. Same thing with our 101s. It took forever. As a matter of fact, it was only the youth who went from the 101 to the 201. And that took forever to happen. We had already been a church at that time at least for a year and a half. And the adults just kept having stinky winky in their pants. They just kept having stink. They didn't want to be discipled. My, my, uh, I was about to name some names, but I won't. <laughs> some people that I was close to, the ones that you would think would be, you know what I'm talking about, would be the most receptive, the ones that you think would be like, I'm on the team. I want to support you. The people who are closest in my life rejected it and caused us the most problems. For those of you who know what I'm talking about, just say amen. Let's look at what Paul said to Timothy. Now, setting that up. Imagine this. Wherever you are, we have put you there as Metro Praise. And now we have left you. So let's say you came with us on the trip to India, and then we deposited you there, and now you're in India. And we've left, and we're writing you a letter. Or imagine that we went to Europe, and we left you there, and deposited you there, and, and write a letter. Imagine if we drove down to Texas, Houston, maybe God's calling you to go down south, and we've deposited you in Texas and Houston, and now we've left you there. So for specifically this cohort, think of it as us launching you out. You are now there, and you're there with the team, but you're in charge of them, and now we are moving away. And the leadership, Nancy and I, or people you've grown up with, they're not there with you now. You're the only elder in that place. You're the only elder. Everybody else is looking to you for the answer. Are you guys with me? This is the, con- this is the context of this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. So who does Paul say he is? He's an apostle of Christ. How did he get to be that? By the command of God as Savior. Jesus Christ, who is his hope and the hope of the church. So Paul knew who he was. Paul was an apostle. Now verse 2, Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. So who is Timothy? He is a spiritual son of Paul. Now I wish I could give you guys something really deep and say, like I did before, you're a child of God, you're filled with the Holy Ghost. But here's the context here. You're a spiritual son of Metro Praise. You're a spiritual son, and those by cohort, other courts of the church you're being sent out from. If you're a part of denomination, find somebody in that denomination to send you out and to cover you. But specifically for this cohort, who are you? I'm a son of Metro Praise. I'm a daughter of Metro Praise. I believe that. I believe that as much as I believe this Bible right here. I believe that somewhere in my life, God was going to bring me spiritual sons and daughters, and I believe that time is now. I believe that time is now because we need to start sending them out. But you need to know who you are. You got connected here. And the only thing that I believe, Deanna, that breaks that relationship is sin. I don't see Timothy getting to a place where he says, Paul, I'm no longer your son. I want to go up for adoption, and I want to see what Peter's up to over here. I don't see that. I don't see, uh, Berto, I don't see 
Titus, you know, all of a sudden going away from Paul and then looking for Apollos. And then going to Apollos going, well, Apollos, let me just tell you, Paul's been mean to me. He's been treating me. You see these scars right here? He's been whipping on me. You know, I just don't get along with him anymore. I don't see that being the relationship of the early church. And I believe that you need to know that. So specifically today, there's a calling on your life that Metro Praise is going to develop and send you out to accomplish. Now, to me, that is a dream come true. I think of myself like many of your parents who came from overseas, my great-grandparents, to give you a future, to give you something they didn't have. You have something I never had, not even an SUM. And with Brother Anthony here, as he always does as a good spiritual father, he apologized many times. I don't know if you were there in that conversation. He said, when we first sent you guys out, we just handed you to a denomination. We didn't have a great a resource for you to give you, to help you, and we apologize for that. We wish back then, this is about 12 years ago, 13 years ago, we could have done more for you. He said, now as I am doing the cohort and people who are coming up here, he says, I will be able to do that for them. And he said the same thing here. He says, what you're doing there, you'll be able to do that for them. What does that mean? What that means is when you graduate and now you're discovering that call, we're getting fully behind it. Now, like with Paul and Timothy, it's not about money. It's not about Paul giving Timothy money, saying, here's $20,000, Timothy. Now I've bought you, and now you're going to work for me. No, that's a hireling. Is that a son? How many of you have had parents that you did work for, and they didn't pay you to do it? Hello? My hand goes all the way up. That's called working in your father's business. That's called helping your dad out. And whatever he does give you, be happy with it. Here's a Slurpee, son. My dad owned a gas station, and we would come, I would come and clean up. There it is. There's your Slurpee. Here's your $5. Thank you. But sometimes you don't get paid. It's just you're working for your father's business. So that what you have to ask yourself in this ministry is are you here for a paycheck or are you here for the relationship in the ministry? Who are you? Now, what is the benefit of that? The benefit of that is you can have a job. You can go get a job in ministry. I'll be the first one to say, yeah, if you want to cut ties and go get a job, sure, there will be a hundred places that will hire you because you've been trained by the best of the best of the best. Everything that comes from here is blessed in Jesus' name that's done it the right way. But yet, I can tell you myself, having had a paycheck in ministry, having worked in a ministry where it's a professional relationship, where you don't have the relationship with your pastor as you have here with us, my wife and I, you will, you will regret that because you will know that money can't buy relationship. Because out of relationship and intimacy comes revelation and inspiration and uh, illumination and appreciation and acceleration. Those are all different words. I wish I had time to preach on all of those. Because some people say, I just want to be in a place where they uh, accept me and appreciate me. No, I want to be in a place where they accelerate me. And I've been in places where they paid me. They thought I was awesome, but they never accelerated me. And so what that means is where you go, we got your back. That means we got your back. Nobody's taking you out of that position. No board, no elders, no deacons telling you how to run your church. No youth is going to come in and falsely accuse you. No parent is going to turn your youth ministry upside down, as I've seen happen. Juan Gonzalez, you can ask him about this. Juan Gonzalez lost his job in a prominent church over one off-color joke that no one here would find offensive because some parent got offended about it. Ask him about that. That is how you think you got a job. Oh, I got a job. I'm doing good. One off-color, one, one thing you do wrong that a parent doesn't like in those types of church, boom, you're gone. But what was Timothy to Paul? Now, you know me. I don't usually tell stories, but I notice even in myself right now I'm telling stories. The reason is because we don't understand how it is to do it these days. The church outside these walls wants to go be a part of an organization, denomination, and then expect to have a father relationship. I remember sitting in a denominational board and them telling me, we won't mentor you. That's not our job. And Brother Anthony attests to hearing that from his Papa Logan who was in that meeting. Papa Logan affirmed what I am telling you right now. These men looked at me and said, that's not our job to mentor you. 
You're just here to work for us. I'm not saying everybody's like that. I'm not saying all denominations are like that. I'm not trying to make generalizations. What I'm saying is this is where God has bought you. And we're trying to live this out to the best of our ability. We're trying to have spiritual sons and daughters know that you're supported when you leave here. What was the one thing that kept me going to pastor this church when everybody else left me, when denominations weren't there for me, when my best friends weren't there for me? What kept it going? It was a spiritual father who said, I know who you are. Go make disciples. My friend, that's something that I hope means something to you. We know who you are. And that's why we get up in your business. That's why we get up in reading your mail, stepping on your toes. Oh, me, oh, my, just say amen. Because we care about you. And we are not here to patty cake you. We are here to prepare you as mighty women of God to go out and change the world. See, so he said, Timothy, my true son in the faith. So in the faith, Timothy was a spiritual son. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. That was his standard greeting. What is he giving? Grace. you got to just take off the, uh, the energy saver. It's shutting itself off. Grace means God's undeserved, unmerited favor, not only in our times of sin, but also to keep us from sin. Mercy is God's kindness over wrath and justice. Mercy over judgment. God not treating you how you deserve, but treating you how he sees Jesus' blood poured out upon you. When you fail, you do deserve hell. When I fail, I do deserve punishment. But because Jesus died on the cross, there's mercy on us. Mercy, kindness over judgment. And then lastly, the Bible says peace, which comes from the Hebraic greeting, shalom. As the Muslims say, assalamu alaikum, peace be unto you. Peace means without storm. Without war, tranquility, what, what he is saying is may the, may the tranquility of God calm every one of your storms. May the tranquility of God take away all the battles you're facing right now. The Bible says in Psalms 23, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Uh, the Bible talks about you being more than a conqueror. Why? Because Jesus already fought the battle and won it for you. And now upon this earth, he's demonstrating his power through you. You don't defeat the devil. Jesus defeats the devil through you every day. So who are you? You're a son in the faith. Yes, you are a Christian first. Yes, you are a disciple of Christ first. It is, I am not a priest for you unto God. You are a priest unto God. You talk to God on your own. You hear words from God on your own. You have gifts within you. What I'm here to be is as Paul was a spiritual father figure, which just means one who brings provision for the vision. That's what a father does, provides you to have a good life. The father's not to control your life, make you to be a dentist, do all of, no, just to give you provision, to set you up to succeed, Ellie, to provide something for you that you would have to take years to get. Just for you to come upon this stage and do something, it took me five years to get it, but now you can use it right now in the first day of your ministry. There it is. You get what I'm saying? That's what a father does. He provides for you, gives you things that he worked hard for. Now, nextly, what are you here to do? This is what all the rest of the chapter talks about. I urged you, when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. So he said, I left you there to teach people the right doctrine. I taught you what was right. Now I've left you there to teach them what was right. Once again, the false doctrines of Ephesus, we can only take our best guess at. Scholars don't know. It probably had something to do with Judaism and mysticism because there's the myths that are brought up, which we know they came from paganism. If you remember when Paul went to Ephesus, he was there for three years, and they had burned over a million dollars worth of witchcraft. And so probably what was happening is Jewish people and pagan people were mixing beliefs together. That is what, by the way, Islam is. Islam is a pagan belief mixed with Judaism and Christianity. 
What they do is pagan. The prayer beads, the marching around Mecca. Right now is the time of the Hajj. Going to Mecca. Uh, the, the throwing rocks and the way they do different things. Like how we throw salt over our shoulder. They throw rocks at a certain stone right now during the Hajj. They'll stone the devil. All of this is kind of witchcraft practice that they incorporated into Judaism and Christianity. And that's somewhat similar to what's going on here. The teaching of false doctrines might have been a doctrine of salvation by works. That could have been what they were dealing with, salvation by works. We know that in James that was very popular and that it had to be straightened out. We also know in Galatians that they were believing different gospels, gospels that uh, we see were coming through pagan influences and being made to look like Christian beliefs. One of the examples of that could be with the... um, Siren, or excuse me, Simon the sorcerer in um, Samaria gets saved. Do you remember how he was saved? He, wanted, he got baptized. He saw the apostles laying on hands. They were speaking in other tongues. The signs and wonders were being inferred there. And then what did he want to do? He wanted to buy it. Do you remember that? Y'all looking at me crazy. Do you remember that? And what did Peter say to him? He said, may you perish with your money. And then what did he say back to Peter? Pray for me. There you go. Somebody read their Bible. Come on, Bible students. That type of mixing with sorcery and the beliefs in Jesus could have been what the Ephesus people were dealing with. But nonetheless, what was Timothy there to do? Timothy was there to set an order. Just like Titus was left in Crete to set it in order, Timothy is left there to set it in order. Now, what does this relate to your ministry today? How is this going to be like where you go today? Today, there are Christians all over this country that mix other beliefs with Christianity, and you are there to set it straight, to take away their myths that they think Jesus is like. It's a myth. Look at this again and tell me if you don't see the correlation. Not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Myths having to do probably with paganism or Jewish mysticism. And then the genealogies being some type of a Jewish thing. They were mixing them together. Do people mix other things with Christianity today? Oh, yeah. They mix universalism with Christianity. There's no hell. And people all around America right now don't believe they're going to hell. Because they only think murderers and rapists go to hell. What about other superstitious beliefs like the horoscope and psychics? There was a Christian in our church going to a New Age guru who believed himself to be another incarnation of Christ. She came to our church for a year and a half, and no one ever confronted her at the other churches she came from. We were the only ones to discover who she was, to look it up on the web, and to rebuke her. But the whole time, she thought she was still a Christian. And we saw a breakthrough, but then we didn't see her anymore. So I assume she went back into that lifestyle where she wanted to meditate and go downtown and affirm this guru, but also put Christianity in her life. What are some other things that you see today? How about the entertainment and the way Kanye West and other artists represent Christ, Taylor Swift? These people want to represent Christ but live an immoral lifestyle. Isn't that a myth to think that you can live an immoral lifestyle and just claim Christ and then go to heaven? So what are you going to have to do in that place that you're sent to minister? You're going to have to teach people no longer to believe in false doctrines. One of the most important things you will do wherever you go is to situate and straighten out the gospel. Because most people today don't understand the gospel. That men are born sinners. And that without the blood of Jesus Christ, they cannot be saved. Most people think they're okay. So that's why you have to show them that they, in Romans chapter 3, have fallen short of the glory of God. That everyone has sinned. That the law of God, as Galatians says, is a schoolmaster to show us how we've all broken it to bring us unto Christ. Who are you? You're a child of Metro Praise, a spiritual son or daughter. What are you to do? To preach the real gospel in confrontation to a false gospel. I hope that blesses you today. I can't tell you how many times that's blessed me as I've read it. Why is Timothy one of my favorite books? Because I think of myself as that young man. Being a spiritual son of of SUM at that time. Going out and preaching. And people trying to change me. And trying to change my message. But I knew 
that I had to preach the right doctrine, to preach the true faith. And what is it? Here it is, verse 5. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So what is love? Love is devotion. Love is to be inwardly committed to something. If I say I love my wife, I'm devoted to her. I have feelings of intimacy. Strong love means strong devotion. So this is to be devoted emotionally to God. You're devoted emotionally to God from a pure heart. So your heart is pure. As the Bible says, from the heart flows all the wickedness of man. Your heart is pure from the sin, the evil thoughts, the compromise of this world. A good conscience, meaning also of your hands, clean hands and a pure heart in Psalms 24. Uh, Paul said, I'm free from the blood of all men off my hands. Ezekiel mentions that if you don't preach the gospel as you ought to, the blood of men's souls will be upon your hands. Your conscience being clear because you know that you know after you've done everything that day and you lay down at night, your hands are clear before God because you've done everything that you can. And whatever you've done wrong, you make it right. You go to bed with a clear conscience. If you sin today, you make it right. You go to bed, you know your hands are clean. That's how you serve God, with a pure heart. That's the goal. Are you getting the goal here? The goal is to be devoted, love God, to love this God that we serve, to love him with a pure heart. You're holy on the inside. Your conscience is clear from sin because you've been forgiven. And then lastly, the third attribute is a sincere faith. It's not a faith that is easily shaken. It's not a faith that is uh, up and down because sometimes people come to the ministry, sometimes people don't. As Nancy will tell you, I've preached the same whether this place has been full or whether we were preaching in the Methodist building to six people. I've never stopped preaching with a sincere faith. When the devil attacks your faith, he'll take away your sincerity. If he can get you to doubt God just a little bit, the Bible says a double-minded man in the book of James is unstable in all they do. If you've ever noticed that, that, you know, the devil will come, start to have you doubt in your call. And then you start doubting your location. Why am I here? Then you'll start doubting your ministry. Then you'll start doubting whether or not God even really gave you the Holy Spirit, if speaking in tongues is real. And then you'll start doubting if really you were saved or if this is all real. And you'll come all the way back to doubting if God is even real. And you're called in the ministry. Why? What happened to your faith? You allowed it to be shaken by the temptations and trials of life. Well, how do you build your faith? The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That's why you as a faithful minister don't just read your Bible to do homework studies. You don't just read your Bible to get a sermon or a message. You read your Bible to feed your soul, to build your faith. And then what else builds your faith? Speaking or praying in the Spirit. Building up your most holy faith. So when you read the Word of God and begin to speak in tongues and pray in the Spirit, the Bible says you're building your faith so that it will become a shield in Ephesians. It says it's a shield that will extinguish all the fiery darts of the enemy. Why is it some succeed and some fail? Because they've allowed their faith to be shaken. And that's what it says in the next verse. Some have wandered from these. Well, what are these? They've wandered from a pure heart. They've wandered from a good conscience. They've wandered from a sincere faith. And what have they turned to? Meaningless talk. What is the Jesus seminar? Meaningless talk. What is Bart Ehrman? Meaningless talk. What is the Methodist Episcopal Presbyterian movement that allows homosexuality in the church today? What has it become? Meaningless talk because they don't have a pure heart anymore. What happened to these movements of God where they allowed impurity to come? They've become meaningless talk. You go into their churches and there's no longer the power of God. And I don't by any means mean all Presbyterians, all Methodists. I'm saying when those churches turn from purity, they no longer represent the Whitfield and Wesley from whence they came. Because somebody changed who they were. They didn't know who they were. The Methodists forgot why they were there, what they were to stand for. I've even heard that liberal forms of the Baptist church, not the Southern Baptist Convention, but liberal forms of the Baptist church are now affirming homosexuality. And just to make it fair, one of the most prominent leaders in Pentecostalism who actually preached at the 100-year Azusa Street anniversary, Carlton Pearson, became a homosexual affirming pastor. 
And he is not a homosexual, but he changed his beliefs on the matter. And what happened to that? Meaningless talk now. They talk about God. They talk about the sacraments. They talk about the Bible. But where's the power? What will happen to you if you compromise your message? What happens to you if you compromise who you are? You compromise what Metro Praise stands for. You compromise what SUM stands for. You compromise those things. You change into something else. You affirm false doctrines. You affirm things that defile your heart. The Bible says your ministry becomes meaningless talk. And it says, verse 7, they want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Once again, we don't know exactly who that is. That could be the Judaizers, just as Galatians mentioned, that they're boasting about circumcision. And Paul says if they boast in the law, why don't they just emasculate themselves? Because it counts for nothing in righteousness. Or it could be talking about some type of a person uh, working together spiritualism and Christianity and there being some type of a witchcraft practice or a new age practice of Christianity. Whatever these false believers were, he says to them that they want to talk about the law. They want to act like they know what God is about, God's commandments, but they don't even know what they're talking about. Verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. Now, the question right here is what law is he talking about? Is he talking about the Old Testament law, the law of Moses? Is he talking about Christ's law that is mentioned in Galatians, a book that came much prior to this? I believe he's talking about the Old Testament law because he says, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. So how would I use the Old Testament law now since Christ? Here's how we use it. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusts him. So here and now it says, what is the law used for? The law is used to show the guilt of all men, their sin, which is apparent to anyone that has a brain. That's what he means by that. He says the law is for those who kill their fathers, kill their mothers, for those who are unholy, those who are irreligious. So when I preach to somebody, I can show them the reason why Jesus had to come by pointing to the law. Because back in the Canaanite days, back in the days of the uh, the Midianites, back in the days of all the other Jebusites, all those ites, this is how they lived. They would even kill their own parents. There's stories of kings killing their own mom. Yes. But what do we do with that? We use it to point to the glorious gospel of Jesus who fulfilled the law and then gave us what is now called the new covenant, the new law, the law of Christ, which is summed up in loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. So what ought you be able to do? You should be able to show people their sins. That's what this statement means. Look at it again. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. So how should you use the law? How is the proper use of the law? To convict people of their sins. Does everybody see that? So somebody says, I'm not a sin. Pull out some laws out of the Ten Commandments that do with the moral law of the Ten Commandments, the dietary law, the, uh, the, the civil laws, and the priestly laws are not applicable. This is talking, I believe, about the Old Testament moral laws. And that's why when he starts saying all of these things, he doesn't say pork eaters. He doesn't say those who mix two different types of cloth. He doesn't say like those who eat shrimp. When he uses the example of what the law convicts of, what does he show? Rebels, sinful, unholy, irreligious, murderers, perverts, adulterers, slave traders, liars. See, some people think that slavery was justified in the Bible. It was never justified in the Bible. Slave trading was against the Jewish law even. Slavery in the Jewish law was never like it was in the American culture. Ignorant people abused the Bible to make that their claim. All slavery was was a way of taking people in to your uh, bondage. If you won a war, 
or to have them work in your house. But in both cases, if you were if you defeated them in a war, which by the way, if they defeated you, they would do something much worse. Everywhere they look at the Old Testament, the compare it to the cultures around it, the Old Testament Moses Mosaic law was always more kind, gracious, and liberating than any law of its day. Do you understand? And so when they were taking the people they won, it was to take them in because there's nowhere else for them to go now. We're not just going to let the, our enemies go free. That was the mindset. But then they could be set free over time. And a Jewish fellow Jew could never be held into slavery more than what his debt was to be paid. And then the slaves that were with the people of Israel, they weren't to be beaten. There was laws for them. You couldn't beat your slave. You couldn't rape your slave. Do you understand? There were laws regarding the slave ownership. But even here in the New Testament, as we know later on in in this book, he says, slaves, obey your masters. But what he's saying to them is, this is more now in the Roman culture of an indentured servant. This was more of a job for those people. And he's telling them how to get along. But then what does he say to the slave owner? He says, treat them well because you will be judged on how you treat them. So there was never any permission, by the way, when you see this, because that's where it tells you slave trading was wrong. So when anytime the Bible affirms slavery, it's not in the sense that it's unjust or unfair. It was either in a Middle Eastern culture where that was above the norm of its day or in the New Testament culture that had nothing to do with ownership, nothing to do with abuse. Are you listening to me? Because that kind that did deal with abuse... That kind that did deal with sex when men would come and steal little boys and make them their sex slaves. The Bible says that that kind is wicked for liars, for perjurers, and whatever is contrary to sound doctrine. So what does the law do? It convicts of sin. So how do you use the law to convict people of sin? What do I like to use? The nine moral laws of the Ten Commandments. Somebody says, well, why don't you use the Sabbath law? That was a ceremonial law to me. And Jesus then says that he's the Lord of the Sabbath and that Paul comes along and says, all days are alike. So that's the only law that's already been fulfilled in Christ right now. So the moral laws are the ones that transcend both covenants. Do you understand? Murder is still murder in both covenants. Jesus never came back and said it's okay to murder. Child molestation is still wrong in both covenants. Nobody ever did away with that. That's why in the, in the homosexual movement they want to say that Jesus never said homosexuality was a sin. He didn't have to. Jesus affirmed the law. He never, any moral law that was in the Old Testament remained in the New Testament. All the other laws, the civil laws, the death penalty laws, he, he justifies, I mean he eradicates. Remember the woman caught in adultery? They have the stone. They're going to kill her. He says, don't do it. He just changed the civil law now that says you judge the person who sins morally. Did you get that? Jesus changed that. Then what about the priestly laws, all the Levitical laws, the book of Leviticus, all the things that tell you you have to go to a temple, to a temple. What did he say to the woman in John chapter 4? He says, you don't need to go there. He's looking for those who worship him in spirit and in truth. So there's no more Levitical priesthood now for you. You don't need somebody going. So there's a whole bunch of laws. Whoop, there goes all the Levitical laws. There goes all the civil laws. And then the ceremonial laws or the purity laws. You can't touch a dead person or you can't do this. You can't eat that. You can't do that. What did Jesus then say? It's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what goes out. There There goes all the dietary laws. Then what about the ceremonial laws that have to do with what you do on the Sabbath, picking grain and all that? He says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Sabbath wasn't made for the man. Uh, wasn't, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for the man. Boom, it's over. No longer is a day set aside where you can't do a certain type of a task. You can any days alike. And Paul comes back and affirms both of those things about diets. He says you can eat anything as long as it's accepted with prayer and thanksgiving. That's why we pray. It's, it's here along in, in Timothy. And then Paul says, it's not one day, a new moon, any day over another day. He said in Corinthians, one affirms one day over another, but let each one do it unto God and not judge the other. So, boom, there you go. There's the ceremonial laws. There's the dietary laws, the purity laws. There go out the, uh, the civil laws. And there go out the um, Levitical laws. 
But what's remaining? Don't kill. Don't murder. Don't lie with a man as another, another man lie with a man. What do you call those? The moral laws. Do the moral laws remain? Look at Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes. You've heard it said, don't murder. I'm even going to take it another step, Jesus says. If you look after a woman in lust, uh, I mean, if you look after a woman, uh, do not commit adultery. He said, but I'll take it another step further. If you look after a woman in lust, that's adultery. Then you've heard it said, don't murder. But if you're angry with your brother or sister in your heart, then that is even considered murder. So how do you use the law to convict people of sin? Verse 11, that conforms. To the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Let's just stop right there. I won't keep you here for the rest of the, the reading. I don't even have close to enough time. So we'll just split it in half. Let's all stand up. Who are you? And what have you come to do? Leilani, would you come, please? I thought I could do one chapter a week, but there is no way. There is no way. past that and get to the other stuff, but I felt that the Lord had to stay on that a little bit longer so I can help you understand the law. Basically, the summary of today's section of Timothy is knowing that you are here connected to this ministry for a purpose. And that purpose is going to be to set in order what is the gospel. So I gave you a lot to think about today when it comes to your relationship to this ministry. That's why you have to pray that God blesses this ministry. That's why you have to pray that it continues to grow and increase. As I was saying during our prayer time, those of you who want to go out and do mission work, how can you be supported? By the disciples you raise up here. Think about that. If you just have 12 disciples commit to you $100 a month, how much is that? $1,200 a month. There it is. You can live overseas for $1,200. If you can't live overseas for $1,200, you have a problem. Amen? The only one place right now where it may be hard to do that is certain places in Europe and certain places in Japan where their value is a little bit higher than ours. So just go in 14 or 15 disciples. Amen. <laughs> it's that easy. Don't you see that? It's that easy. You guys can live in, in, in Guatemala, Honduras. I always say Guatemala. Forget about Guatemala. We don't care about them. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You can live with the Aztec people of Mexico for $1,200 a month. Think about that. You could find an apartment, a good apartment. We were in Nayahit in Mexico, Nayahit, uh, which is outside of uh, where we were, Rosa Morada. It's Tuspan uh, and Nayarit. No, no, no. Nayarit is the state. No, the big ones, though. I want to talk about Ishanai, Jalisco, and Nayarit. So Nayarit is a city. No, no, I'm not talking about a state. I just want to talk to one of you right now. I'm going to get the right name. Notice you, Vanessa. Outside of Rosa Morada, there are big cities. The closest one is what, Tuspan? Okay, not Tuspan. Another hour away that is bigger. It's like twice the size of Tuspan. We drove through it to peak. There we go. Thank you. Back to my point. When we were in Topeak, I met Isha's family, like his cousin or somebody that's a lawyer, and they had like this real nice apartment in the downtown area. And then, did you ever go to that house? No, but it was a beautiful apartment. Like, you know, it was kind of small to what I would think would be there, but it was like very, very upper scale for that. And I was thinking to myself, I could live here. Now, <laughs> no offense to those who lived other places, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I'll just show my my little, uh, whatever you call it, idiosyncrasies here, you know what I'm saying? I'll live in a village if I have to, you know? This wouldn't be easy. 
You know what I'm saying? Would it be? You know, if I lived in the village, I wouldn't even try to be an American anymore. I would just put mud all over my face. I'll become a person of color. I'll throw away all of my clothes, throw away my stuff. I'm just being honest. And go live in the Amazon and just say, I'll see you all later. I'll talk like that. I'll talk like that. I'll wear uh, just a little bit of grape leaves, the, the thing going right through, the little cheese string going right through. You know what I'm talking about? I don't even want you guys to think about how Nancy would be dressing out there. You know what I'm talking about. That's what I would do. That would be in the Amazon. You know what I'm saying? But $1,200, y'all could do that. Bam. Raise up some disciples, baby. See, what you need is right here. The provision for your vision is right here. This is the place to do it now. And then when you go, I guarantee you, what are you going to see in Mexico as a mixture of witchcraft, of myth, mythology, and of uh, Christianity? What do, what do we, yes, see, what do we call that Catholicism? Where they have relics in a lot of these Catholic churches. They'll have a piece of flesh in a, in a, in a little jar. And it's all decrepit, and that will be from a saint. They'll have a tooth. These are called relics. I'm being honest. Pieces of hair from somebody that lived 300 years ago. Serious. Witchcraft. Worshiping the dead. But you have to go there and preach the gospel. Show them the law. Show them that they're sinners. And show them that there's a glorious gospel. The glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that saves. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today. That we know who we are and that we know what we're called to do. We're called to preach the glorious gospel. And the goal of that glorious gospel is that people would have pure hearts, clear consciences, and a sincere faith. Would you pray for three people right now in your ministry that you want to see get the goal of the, of the glorious gospel? Three people right now that God is using you to minister to in, in this house right now. That, come on, God will use you to preach the gospel using the law. And that you will see them have a pure heart, clear conscience, and a sincere faith. Jesus, we pray for those that you're entrusting us to. We pray for those that you're entrusting us to, that you've entrusted to us. In the name of Jesus. Now, if you believe God's going to do it, can you say amen? Amen. Let's bless the Lord today.